service, a few gatherers, um, Morden Road, random little group of people, uh, but hopefully here to hear God speak. So let's go with a couple of questions around our tables. The title tonight is Philip, the Adventure of Evangelism. The Adventure of Evangelism. That's what we're looking at tonight. So here's the question to open around our tables. When was the last time you had a conversation about Jesus? This isn't to throw any guilt on anyone. It might be five years ago. You don't have to tell someone when the last time was. But I just want to know what, what happened. Around your tables, what happened? When you told a friend about Jesus, if you're not a Christian tonight, when was the last time a Christian told you something about Jesus? There's your first question. And then second question, if you get on to this. What do you think are the key principles to personal evangelism? So first of all, we'll share our stories of the last time we told a friend about Jesus, or if you're not a Christian, last time you heard someone tell you about Jesus. Then the second question is, what do you think are the key principles to personal evangelism? Let's spend five minutes as we enter into this topic of the adventure of evangelism. Let's go. as you hear other people talk about their experiences of evangelism, of speaking to others about their faith. Uh, hopefully good as well if you've gone on to the second question of talking about what those key principles to personal evangelism are all about. We mentioned a few around our table, just a knowledge of what the gospel is. It must be a key principle to personal evangelism. Second, when talking about Jesus, to make sure that we talk about the whole concept of the gospel, not just one or two parts of the gospel that sound good, sound happy, sound okay. Thirdly, uh, we talked about um, maybe being in tune or listening to the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit convicts a heart and says, go over to that person and speak to them, or it is about time you just told them you were a Christian, or what about inviting them to an event at church. There's a prompting that goes on. And we know when it comes and we know how to quash it, but we know also um, to move in step uh, with it. And we talked about one or two other things as well. Acts 8 is all about the adventure of evangelism. It would be great if you had uh, your Bible open. There's three distinct sections in Acts 8. Before we go to uh, Acts chapter 8, um, there's a little handout, blue handout or, or white on, on a, one table. Um, and I just thought it would be helpful, if you haven't been a part of this series, just to do two or three minutes on Acts and some helpful pointers uh, to understanding how Acts applies for us um, today. So let's just work th through those five bullet points. I've just put them down as, as helpful tips for me. Whenever I try and read Acts, whenever I try and study it or understand it, these pointers are quite helpful. There's the first one. Acts as a narrative does not usually teach or give answers to a, to a direct doctrine, but illustrates a doctrine taught elsewhere. So as a narrative, Acts chapter 8, it's not a complete overhaul of the doctrine of evangelism or speaking God's word, 
It's a story of how speaking God's word actually took place. Second point, Acts is a selective and incomplete record of history, but we are given the important facts that we need. Acts is not a factual book of the whole of history, the whole of the gospel moving out. It's Luke making account of the things that are important. Third, what people do in narratives is not always a good example for us to follow. So Acts isn't written for us to copy the character exercise. If you've read about Philip, often I think that in some people leaves them very disheartened. What an evangelist. I'm nothing like that. I never will be. And walk out the church if they think that this is about a copy the character exercise. Walk out the church distraught that they'll never be like that. Acts was not written for that reason. Fourthly, we're not left with a good or a bad judgment. It's a story. The reader is expected to work that out for himself through the story as the story continues. It's a book of history. It's not a book of right and wrongs. And fifthly, God is always the hero. Philip is not the hero of Acts chapter 8. We can learn many things from Philip, but he's not the hero. It's not that we're going to place Philip on a pedestal, say, look at him, what a guy. We're going to place God up there to his rightful position and say, what a God. Because when we look at Acts and try and understand why it was written, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the gateway to our understanding. Here we have a key verse to understand why Dr. Luke wrote his sequel to his gospel. Acts 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's our gateway verse, because what happens in Acts now is exactly that. And there are some great bookends, some great verses that complete a section of Acts. I've just listed them there for you. I'll read them ever so quickly. As we understand Acts 1 verse 8 being the gateway to the book, let me just read these verses. Acts 6 verse 7. This whole uh, section from Acts 1 verse 1 to 6 verse 7 is, is a description of the Jewish early church in Jerusalem. And verse 7 says this in chapter 6, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There's the first section. This is the gospel going forward from Acts 1 verse 8. What about Acts 9 verse 31? Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of of the Lord. That is the ending of a section that describes the first geographical movement of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Acts 12, verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. The end of a section, which is the description of the first expansion to the Gentiles, of the story of Cornelius, which is told twice. 
Acts 16 verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in in the faith and grew daily in numbers, a continuation of the gospel to the Gentile world with Paul in leadership. Acts 19 verse 20, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is when the gospel goes out further into Europe and the Jews are rejecting the gospel and the Gentiles are accepting it. And our last ending of these six sections, Acts 28 verse 31, says this, well 29 to 31, therefore, right at the end of Acts this is, therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why Luke wrote Acts. And important for us to understand this. Luke wrote Acts to help us understand how the gospel moved. From those few disciples two other Christians in Jerusalem. Then out to Greek-speaking Christians. Then out to Gentiles. Then out to further into Europe. This is why Luke wrote Acts. The Gospel going forth. And so when we come to Acts chapter 8, we see another section of the Gospel going out. And it's Philip. I've split Acts 8 into um, those sections, quite apparent um, as the chapter uh, unfolds. Acts 8, verses 1 to 8. The church is scattered and persecuted. Philip heads into Samaria. And then as a, a heading for this section, God's plan and God's way can never be thwarted. Let's go to verse 1. Saul was there giving approval to his death. Whose death? Stephen's death. Stephen was stoned because of the gospel, because he held strong to it. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. Imagine the apostles at this point. They stayed in Jerusalem, the only group of Christians who stayed in Jerusalem. Perhaps underground, perhaps quite scared, perhaps hidden because Christians were getting battered. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. It was all going so very well. People were becoming Christians. Flocks. Flocks of men and women, boys and girls who didn't know Jesus were accepting him as Lord and Saviour. And then up pops Saul. Our faith has been thwarted, perhaps the apostles are thinking. The others have been scattered. Some of them have fled, no doubt. Is there any hope? You see, the first few verses of Acts chapter 8, Luke wants us to understand that God's plan and God's way can never be thwarted. Perhaps a hopeless situation that you're in now. Oh, that's it. No hope. Perhaps a family member who for years will not listen to the claims of Jesus. No hope. There's no point in talking to them about Jesus. There is no hope. Perhaps a friend who is 
ravaged by illness. There just seems to be no hope for them. And these verses act as a great reminder for us that God's plan and God's way can never be thwarted. What happens, verse 4 is the answer, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Instead of being scattered all over and going into hiding and the gospel somehow petering out, what do they do? God's plan is that persecution to the church would mean that the gospel ends up in Magdalen Road Church on the 14th of March. 2010. This is God's plan. Those that were scattered preached Christ wherever they went. Philip was one of those seven deacons filled with the Spirit, filled with wisdom, we see from chapter 6, verse 3. He's not an apostle. He's not one who's set aside to proclaim God's word and to prayer. But all the more he went out and preached Christ. And look at verse 8. There was great joy in the city as Philip preached Christ. There was great joy. Hopefully that means that because of the Spirit's power moving, because of Philip's great proclamation, faithful proclamation of the Gospel, there is great joy. I wonder what that looks like for you, that hopeless situation. Philip fled. Fled knowing that everywhere he went he was going to speak of Christ. The situation didn't overcome those who were scattered. Instead God's plan was that they would be scattered. And so we have the gospel here today. And then the second story is of one man. One man where Philip preached in a Sumerian city called Simon the sorcerer. Let's look, see what happened in this little story. Verse 12 of chapter 8. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Here's Philip again. He's in a Samaritan city and he's preaching the good news of Jesus. And true things were happening. People were believing and were getting baptized. And verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent a couple of the heavy mob in, a couple of the boys to work out what is exactly going on. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. But what about this man, Simon? I've titled this little section, False Faith is Still Present Even When True Preaching and True Miracles Point the Way to Jesus. Philip was going about his business faithfully. We know that there were many coming to the Lord Jesus. We know that two apostles come down and prayed that they would also receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what about Simon? What is the object of Simon's faith? The object of Simon's faith looks like it is supernatural power. That is the object of Simon's faith, not the true reality of what Philip is preaching. 
Simon is caught up with this supernatural power, these miracles that Philip is able to do. Thinking how best to illustrate this. And I heard a good illustration of a little baby. If you hang out with babies long enough, you see that they love to repeat what you do. And so when you're trying to get their attention, and maybe to get their attention on on something out of the window, look at the flowers out the window, and you hold the little baby up, and you point to the flowers. Look at them. And a little baby has this amazing ability, instead of looking at the flowers to which you're pointing them to, they look at the finger. And they just stare at it. Smile. Even to the point where they try and do the little point themselves. And so they're not even looking at the flowers. They're looking at the finger that's pointing. And then they're trying to do exactly the same. And this is exactly what's happening Here, look at what Philip is pointing to, Christ. He's preaching the good news of Jesus. Philip, in effect, is the finger. The word of God is the finger. It's pointing to Christ. And look at Simon as Philip himself, the word of God and those miracles, all fingers pointing. Look what Simon's got hung up on. He's got hung up on the finger. The supernatural power that points to the reality of saving grace. The reality of the gospel. Simon does not look to the glory of God. But he's drawn to a faith by the means, by this miraculous power. We've just come back off school mission. Those guys involved in Christians in sport. Young people there say, listen, I believe If I could see it, those miracles in the Bible, I don't believe them. Unless I see those miracles happen, then I'll believe. They get excited about the miraculous. They're drawn to our faith by miracles, by supernatural power. And this is exactly what has happened to Simon. You see, his experience of faith was amazement. It was in awe of Philip. His experience of faith wasn't repentance or a humble trust. It was of all. Look, verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and had amazed all the people of Samaria. This is Simon's job. His job was to amaze the people. Verse 11. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his, his magic. Simon is an amazing man. Maybe today we call him a magician, David Blaine. Simon is this amazing man. And so he's drawn to this faith by amazement. Verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished or amazed by the great signs and miracles he saw. He's amazed that Philip has more power than he has. There's no scepticism of the supernatural. He's totally bought in. But he's amazed that Philip is a great man. He can do wonderful things. And so understand here that even though Simon had a faith 
It's a faith in supernatural power, not in a saving faith, not a faith that is based on the gospel message. Philip's finger is pointed to Jesus. Simon's not interested in what he points to, like the little baby. He's just interested in the finger. And the miraculous powers are the big finger that he's drawn to. look like for us today does that mean there can be people that have a faith they believe but it's not a saving faith well yeah I think so I really do think so if we look in John chapter 2 we see this John chapter 2 verse 23 let's just go there for a moment as Jesus Jesus' work, just after this, Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Um, John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. He said that people believed. They saw his miraculous signs, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Possible to believe, to have a faith, yet for it not to be a saving faith? Yeah, I think so. Jesus talks about this again, the parable of the sower. Luke 8, verse 13, you know the story. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground. They accept it with joy. It looks as though they have a faith. But is it saving faith? No, it's gobbled up by the birds. It's taken away. It's not a faith on the gospel. It's not of true repentance. And so how is Simon addressed? He's got a crooked heart, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. As Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God (coughs) with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness And pray to the Lord, perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. And then here's the telling verse. For I say that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. What does that look like? Simon, what do you want? You're not interested in a a saving work that the gospel talks about. You're just interested in power, in amazement. You're not of Christ. You have a crooked heart. A couple of things here that I think we can get perhaps hung up on. You may be sitting there thinking, why doesn't he talk about this? Here's one or two questions that I have of the passage. And we've got to be careful, firstly, that 
we don't jump to a conclusion tonight. Danger for us to say, and danger I think particularly for us in this room, for us to say, never trust that the miraculous is happening. See what happens in Acts 8? If we get caught up on the miraculous, it won't really lead to true faith, to repentance. There's a danger that we could say that tonight, a real danger. But hopefully the illustration helps us understand this. The miraculous really does act as the finger pointing to Jesus. As does the sermon. How many of us in church get caught up on the sermon? And we don't let the sermon actually point us to Jesus. We talk about the sermon maybe. But we don't let the words actually fix our eyes on Jesus. Maybe... A good book, a good Christian book, can act as a finger pointing to Jesus, but we get caught up with the book. Careful tonight that we don't judge the miraculous. That we don't just quickly jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, it's a bit dodgy. It's a bit dodgy. Does the miraculous still happen today? Yeah. Because... God is God. might be in different ways from the way we see it happen in Acts. Usually is. But can the miraculous still happen? Yes, it can. And it does. And it will. But make sure we understand that the miracle is a finger pointing to Christ. And if people are talking about the miraculous, rather than seeing it as a finger point to the glory of God, then beware. Beware. The greatest miracle is the forgiveness of sin and the giving of a new heart. But can Jesus perform the miracle to point people to a saving faith in Christ? Yes. Yes, he can. So let's not jump on the bandwagon that says, miraculous careful about that. Be careful. But if it points to the glory of God through the saving work of Jesus, then embrace it. Really embrace it. And what about then the receiving of the Spirit in two parts of the day? You notice that? Or is the speaker going to address that? What does that look like for us today? They believe, yet the apostles come down to the city and they have to place their hands on them to receive the Spirit. Does that mean today that there are two sections of a believing faith, the two parts of a believing faith for us? Firstly, that we believe, and then secondly, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Well, a lot of people, a lot of good people, a lot of great studiers of God's Word differ on this point. They really do. And so I'm not going to try and address that question, but ask a different one. The real question is, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Did you, sitting here tonight? And you might be able to say, yes, I've seen the Spirit's work of obedience in my life. Yes, I've seen the Spirit's work subduing sin in my life. And I've seen the Spirit put upon my heart 
acts of love that aren't possible for me unless the Spirit lives in me. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed then? Yeah. And others of you will say, yeah, I've seen the Spirit of praise in my life, filling my heart and mouth with worship to Jesus and God the Father. I have a Spirit of joy. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed then? Yes. And others of you will say, I've seen the Spirit of courage at work in my life. I've seen him in my heart overcoming fear, giving me a will to risk things for the cause of Christ. Well, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Yes. 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 The question isn't about receiving the Spirit in two parts. The question is, have you got a Spirit-filled life? Are you saved? And they go hand in hand. If you're saved, you've got a spirit-filled life. And if you've got a spirit-filled life, you're saved. And if you couldn't say yes to any of those things, if you couldn't say yes to the Spirit's acts of obedience in your life and the Spirit's acts of praise in your heart and the Spirit's act of courage to overcome things, then maybe tonight, Maybe tonight it's worth asking the question, where have I put my faith? Is it like Simon? Where Simon has put his faith in the supernatural just to make himself better, make himself look good? Or have you put your faith in the saving work of Jesus? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? If you can say yes, then you're in Christ. And praise God for that. And it might have been a miracle that pointed you to Jesus. Certainly it would have been somewhere God's Word taught to you or God's Word being read to you or you reading it yourself. But praise God that you're in Christ. And lastly, let's go quickly to the last story. As we look at this adventure in evangelism the Ethiopian eunuch titled when God's word and God's spirit are at work then expect the unexpected scripture is wonderfully sufficient to help us understand that evangelism is by extraordinary guidance talked about the spirit's prompting understand now that our well strategized plans as a church and as individuals are no substitute for the power and guidance of God's Spirit. We can come up with the best strategies possible. I work for Christians in sport. We're all about trying to reach the world of sport for Christ. That's our job. Our job is to put things in place where we think in this day and age, this is maybe the best forum, the best vehicle to help people understand Jesus. And we'll work very hard at trying to do that. But we have to understand that our best strategized plans for evangelism for evangelism are no substitute for the power and guidance of God's Spirit. He's in charge. He's in control. God's Spirit working through believers, pushing them and prompting them, convicting them to speak to others. That's where the power lies. Of course our plans may be well thought through and may by God's grace be used for the growing of His kingdom, of course. But this is when God's Power is really at work. 
when an obedient heart submits to him and his power and is guided by that ever so small voice and prompting of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Let's have a look at how this works out very quickly. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There we go. There's the beginning. Go. Different for you and I, suggesting it might not be an angel nowadays. But there's a little voice sometimes that says, go. A little push. A little nudge. Go on. And no more instructions after that. How very often do you want, do I want more instructions? Go. Be of Christ in that place as a teacher. Give me more though, Lord. Who is it that you want me to go and speak to? Which group of people in the staff room do you want me to make friends with? Give me more. And the voice will just say, go. And what's our role? What's our part? Trust. What does Philip do? Verse 27, so he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He meets a man. Philip just meets a man on the road. There's no rhyme or reason why he should meet this man. This man of huge importance. Verse 29, what happens then? The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. There's the Spirit's voice again. He's already spoken through an angel. Go into the desert, no more instructions. Philip meets a man, an Ethiopian man, random in the middle of the desert. And then the Spirit speaks again. Go on. Go to that chariot and stay near it. One step at a time, evangelism. Total trust. And dependence in God's grace for guidance. Oh, that was a principle you talked about. That is personal evangelism. One step at a time. He won't let you see the outcome. And very unlikely will you ever get a moment like this. A wonderful moment when then Philip ran up to the chariot, verse 30. And he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? Unless someone explains it to me. Now this is a random set of events. Can you imagine it for you? I tried to for myself. Running club on Tuesday evening. I met a guy called Gary. 47. No interest in Christian things from what I know. Told him that I was a... I worked for Christian in sport. But imagine on Tuesday night. He's sitting in his lycra. Next to the radiator just ready to go out running and he's reading Ephesians 2 and his question is Langs, what does it mean for me to be made alive can you imagine that wonderful opportunity of evangelism how often has that ever happened to you and I never maybe never will maybe might what can we take out of this passage then you look at Acts 8 and think I mean, that's way beyond what will ever happen to me. It's not fair almost. I can't model anything of my personal evangelism on Acts chapter 8, these few verses, because it is just so much out of the ordinary. But let's just work through some of the principles that I think 
we can take out of this. See, what is our job? Our job, again, is to point people to Jesus. When Philip finds this Ethiopian eunuch, this man of huge importance, reading Isaiah 53, what does Philip do? 35, verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What can I do with my mate Gary, even if he isn't sitting next to the radiator reading Ephesians 2 on Tuesday night? I just continue to point Gary to Jesus. That's my job. Through my actions, and then maybe to push the door of our conversation towards what we believe, towards our view of life, and then when the opportunities arise in God's grace to talk about my faith, then will I take those opportunities? That is all I can do. I just point people to Jesus. The Spirit's leading, and I need to obediently follow. And then in verse 39, well, we get a little story um, of Philip and the unit being baptised. And then in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again. Here's an indirect principle maybe. Don't get hung up on the results. Philip isn't even around to see what happens. Now again, it's miraculous because the Spirit takes him away. It's not going to happen for you and I. might do. Never say never, but it probably won't. But you see this point. The Spirit of God takes Philip away and Philip doesn't even know. Philip doesn't know if this is a saving faith. The end of verse 39, we get this idea, the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. We get this idea that he believes, he's been baptised. And then here's the evidence that the Spirit is at work in him. He goes away rejoicing. His heart is filled with joy. And Philip wasn't around to see. You're not called to be part of the whole process. You're guided by the Spirit to be that finger pointing people to the glory of God through the work of Jesus on the cross. And sometimes, years after your faithful service, a friend or someone that you've come across might be born again. And what does Philip Philip do, verse 40? Philip, however, appeared at Astosus. As, yeah, Otus, as Otus, we'll call that. (laughs) And travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Don't get hung up on results. Just carry on. Philip moved on. And he continued to preach of Christ where does this leave us Acts 8 is rich the adventure of evangelism see see what God will do God's plan and God's way can never be thwarted we're part of something that is far greater far bigger even when you think it is hopeless and helpless and have friends and family that you dearly love who don't yet know Jesus. 
God's plan and God's way can never be thwarted. Philip heads on and preaches Christ. What about our lessons from Simon the Sorcerer? Well, understand that there is false faith. False faith is still present even when true preaching and true miracles point the way to Jesus. What should we be a finger pointing? Not that people will get caught up on us, about our lifestyles, want to become like us, but that we would point people to the glory of God through the work of Jesus. And what about our story of the Ethiopian eunuch? When God's word and God's spirit are at work, expect the unexpected. Key principle of personal evangelism. That we would know the gospel and be ready to give an account for it. And then another key principle, that we would move on the Spirit's impulse as he prompts our hearts. A book that I've been reading, well I only read the first two chapters, but that kind of seems to be my pattern at the moment. Get the first two chapters done and then that's it. Um, But it was good, it was good. And I think it just says a lot of the same in the other few chapters from what I've heard. But it was good. Ah, That sounds as though I've um, caned the book, I didn't want to cane the book. They were good chapters. Just walk across the room. As Bill Hybels says, that might be all it takes. Across the train carriage this week. Maybe. Just start a conversation. In the running club, in the football club, the rugby club, in the classroom, in the staff room, at work. Just a small walk across the room from the Spirit's prompting and convicting our heart, it could start the ball rolling of a gospel faith in that friend's heart. And of course, it must all be surrounded by prayer. God is the Lord of the harvest. I'm the worker. All results belong to him. Just carry on. And that might seem very easy for me to say. Very hard to do. Because the world and the devil just wants to pull us away. But hopefully from Acts chapter 8 and some of those stories, we grasp that we're a part of something far bigger, far greater. And this week, the challenge for you is will you, will you, by the Spirit's prompting and conviction, will you step outside of your comfort zone? Because the gospel really matters. Really really matters and let's say our prayers Father thank you thank you for these stories in Acts chapter 8 thank you for Luke it is a, a small section of the gospel going forth from Jerusalem throughout all of Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the world as we're sitting here now in Oxford thank you for guys like Philip who even in the midst of adversity in the midst of trouble and hardship, couldn't help but preach Christ wherever he went. Father, may we take some of those principles so we understand what evangelism looks like for us. As we try and grasp that sometimes people's understanding of faith might be based upon wrong motives. Father, in all the mess and the muddle of people's lives and the relationships we're in, may we continue faithfully 
to be of you, to point people to you, and to speak of you wherever we go. Father, we do long to see our friends and family members who don't know you come to know you. And so we ask, Lord, that this week would be a good week, perhaps an uncomfortable week for some of us, but may it be a week where we listen to uh, your promptings, convictions in our heart, and step out trusting that all results belong to you, but trust that the gospel can save. Thank you that it saved us. And so, Father God, give our hearts real joy as we leave this building tonight. And may we trust you for all things in your powerful name.